Blog Talk Radio. Now 
Institution building, but uh, one of the things that I find very interesting 
this whole question around inequality continues to be an issue uh, in the minds of lots of people. But one of the things people don't seem to recognize is that the inequality we're talking about is, in fact, built into the system. So it got me thinking. So I, I wrote this article, and I'm going to be very brief because we've got this special guest that's coming on. But in any event, Milton Freeman, a conservative economist, opposed all attempts of government acting as a vehicle serving a public good. As an arch anti-status, one who's opposed to government mandates, Freeman privately expressed great contempt for politicians and their pursuit of economic betterment of society. This hostility to economic equality, reduction of inequality, although the brainchild of Freeman, quickly gained relevance by economic elites, eventually culminating in economic policy that would not only legitimize inequality, but make inequality the cornerstone of economic policy. This feat would be achieved by elevating the role of central banks throughout the Western world. Historically, central banks' role were to ensure economic and financial stability. Economic and financial stability would be achieved by regulating the amount of money in circulation to prevent inflation or the increased cost of living, to spiral out of control and undermine the effectiveness for the effective functioning of the economy. Central banks' functions would be revamped and its mandate would no longer serve the interests of the general public in the sense central banks' policy should encourage employment, better wages, and the cost of living favorable to the public population at large. Instead, central banks' mandate would be utilized be utilized to benefit the wealthiest in society. Economic policy would no longer concern itself with the betterment of society. Instead, the economic system would become a poker game in which central banks would provide for cash and chips for a few connected players. This strategy only could, could only succeed to the extent economic elites legitimize such practices. Of course, legitimization of such practices was not problematic for economic elites because of the obvious benefits accrued from a rigged economic system that ensured tremendous wealth for the economic elite. The biggest obstacle was elevating the central bank's policies above government policies. How do you place government's functions and replace it? and place those functions, those government functions with the institution, specifically designed to assist government in its functions, easy. During the Nixon administration under Freeman's guidance, um, he would create a centralized, excuse me, a centralized economy. The centralized economy would not involve government, but centralized planning of central banks. Under the Bretton Woods rules, agreed upon by, by 44 states back in 1999, establishing the rules of international trade and finance, were eliminated by a single measure, eliminating the gold standard. By eliminating the gold standard, fiat currency, currency which has no value, was elevated to value status. Free from the rules establishing gold as world reserves, fiat is what Fiat is what gives currency value. Central banks, in conjunction with Treasury Department, were free to, to print unlimited currency without concerns for inflation or the real economy. Real power was fundamentally shifted from the governments to central banks. By extension, this ensured the empowerment of economic elites and by de facto policy, arbiters or rulers of government control. In 1971, when Nixon removed the U.S. from the gold standard, other countries followed suit to protect their own economies. Immediately, Excuse me, immediate impact of ending the gold standard was the ratio to credit income. As expected, the wealthy corporations took advantage of the access to printed money and used it to engage in speculation. Speculation in rich to hedge funds or gambling, along with other kinds of questionable investments, saw increases in federal reserves and credit to corporations and the wealthy individuals, despite economic activity saw its share of losses. Of course, the losses were inconsequential. Free to print endless money, the benefits afforded few economic elites is precisely what central banks control economic policy was all about. Historically, ending the gold standard occurred a little over two years 
prior to the passage of the civil civil rights era. The lending should go standing the gated African people's access to assets. Assets like loans for houses, or surplus wealth for stock purchases, or even wages, historically not Africans by government policy, saw wealthy advantages threatened by Civil Rights Act of 1978. Nixon ending the gold standard effectively preserved the status quo, ensuring the assets afforded economic elites would not only continue but increase in value. Consequently, it's no mistake the share of wealth employed and wealthy have skyrocketed, while 99% of the population wealth have declined dramatically. How else could one explain the time of a pandemic where economic activities have greatly decreased for the top 1% of wage earners, the top one-tenth of 1% of wage earners, so their wealth increased exponentially? The most serious side of ending the gold standard is the central bank's facility for stealing money from the poorest sectors of society uh, to the wealthiest. Enhanced wealth, of course, uh, elites, it means enhanced power. This stuff is used to write government policy, create favorable laws and news, make pursuit of justice simply too expensive for most people to obtain. Recently, it was revealed Amazon stole $62 million in stolen tips from its drivers. Such practices are not discouraged when the availability of capital is assured. Losing market share is no longer a consideration when corporate debt is routinely brought by government and on Federal Reserve. Buying by corporate stocks is sort of frowned upon as another way to ensure corporate enrichment. Given this backdrop, it is obvious exploitation of workers have become the norm, not the exception. In addition to that, when we think about the declining wages and age rising costs, it's another example of, of theft. Now, the bottom line is this. Workers are expandable, and the future of humanity precarious. Currently, exists an economic system which not only creates winners and losers, but creates a mechanism where some are unsure of prosperity. And we can be at least aware of this intrinsic inequality of such an economic system? Of course, they, of course they do. According to Alan Greenspan, a former Fred Cameron, in 1966, he talked about the, the value of the gold standard. He mused, quote, the Federal, the Federal Reserve had pumped excessive paper reserves into American banks between 1924 and 1928, culminating in the Great Depression, end quote. If lack of monetary discipline was the cause of the Great Depression, then why was Greenspan endorsed setting a federal funds rate, a rate which money, uh, banks borrow money from one another, making funds available for investors at a time of economic crisis while starving the real economy? This is not a way to expand money. Is this not a way to expand money, expand the money supply for the wealthy? Uh, how about low interest rates uh, to facilitate inequality? It seems to me capitalism is this, this capitalism economy is this excuse this this dismal science because it operates not with compassion and deception. In a system, void of compassion is a system which can only facilitate destruction economically, politically, and socially. The fight for Nancy, Janet Yellen, and Jerome Powell endorse similar economic strategies suggests. The lives of poor people is of no concern. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Following next is Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. And revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. 
find Brother Anthony. We now bring on Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism back in the government class in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts, Brother Africa. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And it's a pleasure to be on the show with such an illustrious panelist. And once again, I thank you, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. We thank you, for Brother Moses, for your contribution to our shows on a weekly basis. Right now, we want to make a quick announcement before we introduce our guest for this segment. Um, the um, Richmond Ambassador, Culture Ambassador of Richmond, Virginia, Ms. Janine Bell. Before we introduce her, we'd just like to make a quick announcement. Uh, from time to time, as you know, sometimes we have technical difficulties with our um, sound system. Uh, we've been working on it. It's out of our control, so we ask you to bear with us. And uh, hopefully at some point in time in the near future, we hope we can resolve it. But we are aware of that. We want to make you aware of that phenomenon. And um, we continue to fight through this and do the best we can to serve our people. And on that note, we, on that note we'd like to bring in our special guest today. As we talk about what's going on in our community, we have with us Sister Janine Bell, who is known as the Richmond Ambassador of the State of Virginia. And we're going to bring her on right now. We're going to welcome her. And she can share with us some of the things that, that she has planned for this particular African History Month and how we can support it. So, Sister Janine, we welcome you to Africa on the Move. We can ask you to introduce yourself to the listening audience. Who is Sister Janine Bell? Well, thank you so much, Brother Lee, for inviting me to be with you again this evening. It is certainly my pleasure and honor to share on this forum. I I am Omilade Janine Bell. I am the President and Artistic Director of the Alegba Folklore Society, a cultural arts and education organization in Richmond, Virginia. I should say an African-centered cultural arts and education organization in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, We exist to reinstill cultural foundations in the African-American community that are woefully missing um, because of, of course, how we got here and how we've been conditioned since we've been here. And so we do these things um, several ways. Um, We're fortunate to maintain a cultural center in downtown Richmond. We're inviting all who are listening to come and visit us as you are in the Richmond area. Of course, you can visit us virtually on our website, www.efs. I-N-C dot org or if you simply Google Elegba Folklore Society it'll get you there follow us on Instagram at E-F-S-I-N-C follow us on Facebook 
at Elegba Folklore Society. And um, we have additionally cultural festivals that we present throughout the year. We have a Juneteenth Freedom Celebration long before the world just now said, Oh, my God, there's Juneteenth. This past spring, we have been presenting this programming as a commemoration in Richmond for some decades. Uh, Following that in August, the Down Home Family Reunion, a celebration of African-American folk life, building a bridge from the continent into the Americas, and then uh, the holiday of cultural affinity, Kwanzaa. We present the Capital City Kwanzaa Festival every single December. We have a performing company of African dancers, drummers, singers, um, spoken word artists, um, melodic musicians in our repertoire of concerts, dance theater, performance lectures. We guide cultural history tours along the trail of enslaved Africans and other notable sites because There's history hidden in plain sight, and as we all know, most of our stories remain untold. And so one of the ways to tell a story is to read it in a book. And we are presenting once again this year the Black Book Expo, the Black Book Expo, a conscious literary festival. It's been going on all month. Uh, we have had uh, very lively author chats that are still available for you to listen to and reflect on on our Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Elegba Folklore Society. We chatted with Malefi Kete Asante. We chatted with Dr. Ronald Crutcher. We chatted with Chief Obafemi Fayemi, also uh, Anthony T. Browder coming up. This Tuesday, Her Majesty Queen Mother Dorote Desir, and then Professor Cabernet on Wednesdays. These are on Tuesday, Wednesdays, throughout the month of February at 7 p.m. So we hope that some of our listeners may join us this week. And then the festival culminates on Saturday and Sunday in the Cultural Center and also live streaming uh, the Black Book Uh, Expo, a variety of uh, literary topics, a vast display of black history, politics, science, health, personal development, uh, African diasporic culture, novels, uh, memoirs, children's books, all there, Saturday from 3 to 7, Sunday from 3 to 6. Live streaming begins on Facebook at 4 o'clock. Um, there will be uh, authors, independent authors who will be speaking on site. And so there's just so much energy around the written word that becomes a document for generations to come. So I hope that our listeners find this interesting, and we would love to be with you and you with us during these uh, final days of the Black Book Expo a conscious literary festival. But, of course, this won't be the only program that we'll be offering. So, again, find us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. The Allegba Folklore Society is Richmond's cultural ambassador. Uh, Allegba, of course, from the Yoruba uh, cosmology and the Esau spiritual path, the Orisha who opens the road 
bringing clarity out of confusion as an African-centered organization in the former capital of the Confederacy in Virginia, one of the largest import locations for our Africans to be enslaved. There's certainly some confusion that we still need to clear up, and so we invite you all to embrace the spirit. Sister Janine, how did you get this title, the Culture Ambassador of Richmond? How did that come about? I'm just curious. <laughs> it was uh, it was a designation that we received from the city itself. And then, of course, as we have, you know, our organization is now 30 years old, and so now we see a multi-generational impact in people who have been involved with our programs and services. So those who were children tagging with their parents, some decades some ago decades are now are adults now themselves, themselves, often bringing their own children, children which is such, so, such endearing so endearing to us. To us. And so and it is so the people themselves, themselves because they say, because they say you, taught you taught us this information first. You connected, you connected us. You us. held up the you mirror. Talking about the organization, not me particularly, but talking about the organization and its work, um, so that we can see ourselves clearly. So in so doing, that, my brother, is uh, cultural ambassadorship. We certainly pay um, witness to um, your work and the institution, Legbach um, Society, in terms of being an institution in the region of the Richmond metropolitan area. So if anybody in the area, please check out our sister. And closing, Sister Janine, again, how can people support you? For those who may not come to events but want to contribute something, make sure that your institution have longevity, how can they um, give you a blessing? Well, we thank you so much you because, so much. you know, it takes you know, that, the that financial the endorsement financial and, investment and investment for all of our for work all of to our survive. Work. And so visiting again our website, E-F-S, E like Allegra, F like folk folklore, S like society, I-N-C like incorporated, so E-F-S-I-N-C dot org. Click the donate tab there. You can certainly support via PayPal. Uh, the uh, uh, address, address is story1 one one at dot org, And so we appreciate those ways to be in touch. You can contact us on our website so that we can hear from you, ask your questions, make your comments, share information, open a dialogue, open a door, open a road so that we can connect up as family. We need each other. We have to lean inward towards one another so that we can grow in community and grow in strength and grow in power. And, Janine, we'd like to thank you to all that you and your institution um, do for this community, not only this community, but for the world. 
And uh, anytime we have upcoming events, please keep up with in mind. We are open, so you can share with the listening public in terms of your works. And uh, we thank you for sharing this information. So to our listening audience, you see we have some remaining activities for African History Month. Check out Sister Janine Bell and the work that she is doing, and um, go to the website. So, Janine, we thank you and continue to do the work that you're doing, and um, we know through your work as a good example, our people is on a, on a good path of ensuring our freedom and liberation. So we thank you as a culture worker for all that you do. And thank you the same. And thank you the same. All right, thank you, my sister. All right, you have heard Sister Janine Bell elect by Fort Lord Society that the work they are doing right now and continue to do. And we actually please support that work and what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna pause for the calls. We're gonna give you some revolutionary music coming up and when we come back, we can come back with our political panelists analysts and we're gonna discuss what's going on in our world and the community and we'd like to hear from you what's going on in your world and the community. And you can do this by calling 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Mountains, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? Across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. 
and each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Compassion, compassion when it comes to, to poor people's society. society. 
It's very apparent when we look at the kind of policies that take place in the society. Uh, recently, you know, in Long Beach, California, the city council passed an ordinance for groceries in that area uh, for 120 days to actually pay people an additional $4 an hour in addition to the meager salary that they receive. Now, interesting enough, COVID's response was that, listen, if you go through this ordinance, we're going to close stores down. Ultimately, they did. COVID's position was that the $4, uh, additional $4, you know, um, per hour for four months was simply too much, simply not accommodate, simply couldn't accommodate that simply because it posed an economic, economic strain on Kroger. Very interesting because the thing about this is interesting. You know, when the people, the city council put, put together this, this ordinance, the whole point was to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And this is particularly relevant when we think about the fact that according to the United Food and Commercial Workers, 100. 34 grocers, grocers, people working grocery stores, have died from COVID-19. And with that, 28,700 people were actually infected. And the mere fact that Kroger employs 55,000 employees, which statistically means Kroger employees likely to be impacted, Kroger's position that somehow posed a hardship on them was somewhat, somewhat uh, uh, less than genuine. But more importantly, Brother Africa, one of the things that when we talk about the economic hardship, you know, it doesn't square with the earnings of Kroger. Now, over the last three months, Kroger brought in $2.9 billion, taking an additional $1.2 billion from the previous six months. So, con- so courtesy of you know, this was the result of courtesy of rising food prices, uh, also uh, a consumer price index, which is politically manipulated to ensure that institutions like Kroger benefit financially from, in terms of the kind of investments or the kind of credits that these stores have access to. Now, in addition to this, Brother Africa, Kroger, you know, um, Kroger also engaged in a billion-dollar stock buyback. In addition to it, it gave $147 million to his investors. And this notion that somehow that $4, you know, uh, additional $4 uh, 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 per, per customer, I mean, per employee, will pose a, a hardship for Kroger is somewhat disingenuous. But the mere fact that they actually closed those, school, uh, those stores to send a, a message, you know, to the employees or to the city at large, speaks volumes in terms of the kind of apathy or the lack of compassion that these corporations have when it comes to poor working people. Now, obviously, $4 an hour is not a whole lot, additional $4 an hour is not a whole lot of money. So we're only talking about four months of this. So and it's ironic that even though they continue to make billions, billions of dollars, that they continue to advocate a little over millions of dollars in terms of the betterment of their, of their, own, of their own employees. So it seems to me that when we start talking about this kind of ingrained greed, which is so much a part of capitalism, then we got to understand that none of our lives are really valued. And this is why it's important that poor people specifically stop fighting each other and begin to understand that we are objective allies. We've got to start working together to fight a system that's diametrically opposed to all of our interests. So clearly, you know, uh, this quote is such an example in terms of the kind of uh, corporate greed, the kind of corporate indifference that runs rampant in society and why we're obligated to actually stand up. We don't have any choice but to stand up. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay. All right. Um, this weekend, as a matter of fact, I think today marks the 60, the 56th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. 
And at the time he was assassinated, he was very busy building two organizations, Muslim Mosque Incorporated and the Organization of Afro-American Unity. And uh, his plan was to unite with the Organization of African Unity in Africa and therefore, you know, accelerate the pace of, uh, of uh, Pan-Africanism, uh, which was um, uh, uh, emerging worldwide as a result of the people's struggle against all forms of exploitation, including uh, uh, colonialism and settler colonialism. And also, uh, let's see, very, uh, very recently, uh, there was a hearing on reparations held by the U.S. Congress in which uh, retired NFL player Herschel Walker testified um, uh, against uh, uh, reparations for Africans. Uh, his argument being that uh, slavery ended over 130 years ago. And a couple of questions uh, come to mind. One, uh, uh, what uh, credibility does he have as a political organizer in our community? Uh, to my knowledge, she... Um, you know his. Uh, you know he had a successful football career, but that doesn't give him. Uh, you know that the. the uh, you know that the authority to weigh in on political questions affecting Africans. Also, his thing about uh, slavery ending a hundred uh, over a hundred thirty years ago depends upon what part of the south uh, of the U.S. you're talking about. Uh, there, there are indications that slavery lasted well into the 20th century in some locations, depending upon the political conditions of, uh, of Africans in that area. Uh, so uh, those are the uh, two issues I uh, bring it forth. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, what's going on in your community and the world? Brother Moses. Yes, this is um, yes, this, is, uh, this has been this has a great been time to be alive. Uh, spirit, you know the people, you know, the people are, are uh, restless uh, and uh, demanding change. Demanding change. You know, Countries want their countries independence. Want their nations independence. want liberation. Want People liberation. want revolution. Want revolution. And, um, and this um, is the irresistible the historical trend historical that we're we are we in, and, and we must harness and use in the interest of the proletariat. And so I I just think um that you know we've got to advocate for the for the interests of the Cuban people in terms of the the administration that's in power here in the US of A and uh it's it's uh the tendency to wanna ban and uh continue the 
the uh, embargo against Cuba, and we've got to stop that as best we can. Uh, uh, we have to be conscious of, of the needs of the Cuban people, and there's a revolutionary needs, and, it's, and you know, we as a part of the solution, and we're part of the problem. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, the COVID-19 is a key issue still in the U.S. of A. and uh, and and. Uh, Hopefully, Hopefully we are solving this solving problem with the vaccine and with the precautions and uh, and that the things are going down and will continue to go down. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot going on, but those are some of the key things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. To political panelists and listening audience, if you have anything you got to share as relates to what's going on in your world community, Feel free to call in at 323-679-0841, hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. To the panelists, Brother Anthony raised the question, what political credibility does Herschel Walker uh, have as relates to him being a spokesperson as relates to this political issue of reparation? Your response this particular question is Brother Hakeef to get started us off. Brother Hakeef? Okay, while I wait for Brother Hakeef to come forward, Brother Moses, take a stab at this question. How do you view Herschel Walker having any kind of credibility to speak to political issues? that are affecting our communities, such as the issue of reparations. Does he have any credibility? Certainly as a member of society and as a human being and as a citizen of this country, he has the right to express his opinions. But certainly, you know, no, we don't see anything that gives him authority to speak for the interests of black people uh, in the U.S. of A. Uh, in, in, in particular and uh, and, uh, and around the world in general. He's speaking about from his experiences and from his feelings, his feelings based upon his experiences, and he's not he's not uh, an everyday black person in the sense that, you know, he has a career that is a little bit uh, uh, exceptional, I would say, uh, part of the privilege. Few, well, few is a lot, a lot, but it's really a few, a privilege who are who are able to gain these big salaries and uh, and find a standard of living that is comfortable. And so, you know, he he has no sense of uh, blackness in the sense of the soul and and experience of black people in the U.S. of A. As, as for the masses of people, and so, and so, you know, he's 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 not a spokesman for black people in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Thank you. Thank you. Yo, yeah. Can you hear me, brother? Can you hear me, brother? Yes, we can. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I think he has a right to speak. No question about that. I think the problem lies in the fact that when we talk about one who's informed and as as to relate to the issues, I think that's pertinent. I think one of the things Herschel Walker has a long history in terms of articulating things which is so absurd that you would that you would think that uh, clearly uh, you know this guy can't be college educated. 
You can't be that absurd and, and, and particularly the kind of things that he does. But typically, you know, the way the media works is that they find the, the most ill-informed among us, the, the most, the, the most uh, unknowledgeable among us, and they promote their voices. So no one is surprised that you know, they would elevate the Herschel's work of voice. Because when you talk about the fact that, uh, that the history ended 100 years ago, he failed to understand the social or, 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 or psychological social implications of history and what it means to African people today. And to think that somehow that those experiences don't impact, negatively impact on the minds of African people, then it's, then it's clearly someone who doesn't understand just basic, basic sociology, basic psychology. So clearly, you know, uh, so when you talk with someone like Herschel Walker, he doesn't understand in terms of the relationship between institutions and their impact on society. Because he has no understanding of that, it's not surprising that he would say something that's, 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 that's somewhat uh, ill-informed, you know, like slavery ended 100 years ago. Because the bottom line is that slavery, shadow slavery ended 150, 100 years ago. Uh, uh, wage slavery has has not, and when, so we talk about the various institution in terms of you know promoting you know wage slavery. A lot of the factors that went into shadow slavery are still permanent, uh, relevant today. It's simply it's the repression of African people is just more scientific, and so in order to to understand precisely what's going on, it means that you have to do some research in terms of understanding precisely what is happening to African people and how things change in society impact African people. So I'm not advocating that it's up to other groups in terms of, you know, advocating, you know, for African people or determining for African people, you know, what the issues are. It's pertinent among African people ourselves in terms of making sure that we understand what the issues are, take, you, utilize those strategies, create those institutions that protect particularly our children you know, from this kind of onslaught which says that uh, they're less than. So clearly, Herschel Walker has no clue in terms of the complexities and the discussion in terms of, in terms of slavery or reparations. And so when he said these kind of things, I'm not surprised at all. He has a long history of saying pretty silly things. Pretty silly things. You know, brother. Could I add? Could I add something to that? Something to that? Uh, yes, you can, brother. What, yeah. What I want. Yeah, what, what I want to add to Haki's uh, points and uh, and brother uh, Robert's points is that uh, I don't re- re- recall uh, Herschel Walker. Doing any any organizing work among the people, not even among uh, 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 among people in his profession during his career, and uh, and uh, I'm not a, and this is not a uh, not 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 a diss on on all athletes and entertainers. Some of them did do a, uh, do a great deal of work. Um, among uh, among the forces in our community, Herschel Walker is not one of them, uh, to my knowledge. And uh, you know, so his uh, his, pre- his credibility uh, to give uh, a political commentary on our situation is dubious to me. I just find it interesting. Look, if I don't know what he's doing now, but if I'm not mistaken, when he first uh, left professional football, his desire and interest was to become an FBI agent. I'm not sure if that's his current status as an employee, but um, I just find that interesting if you look at what he desired to become and understand that institution in relationship to the historical relationship of our people. Humanity. 
So, you know, I just find that very interesting. Uh, Herschel Walker taking such a position. But he, but everyone is right. We do agree. Uh, regardless of one um, employment, they have the right to articulate their position or whatever things may be. Mm-hmm. But um, I just find it really interesting. But let's continue to move forward. Um, Brother Anthony, I was actually taking lead on this question. Brother Hockey raised the issue of um, the behavior of um, Koger in terms of shutting down the store because they did not want to give an increase of $4 per hour to their employees for a couple of months. Now, what kind of dilemma does that present to the overall society where individual employers can influence and impact the whole community totally just based upon their own self-interest? Um, it seems like to me when you look at how grocery stores are developed and how food are put together, it's done by many people. It's a collective process. But even though it's a collective process and a captive structure, it gives individuals the private ownership of that production, as, that collective production aspect. Therefore, it empowered them to make an act in such a way that COBRA act. Is this one reason why capitalism is not a good overall system for social development when it comes to meeting the needs of the masses of the people interest. It is. It is. And be, because, and because uh, even, uh, the, even the productive, the productive process, process itself is socialized under, under capitalism, but the control, but the of, control it of it is uh, is up to a few individuals. And they have and a they lot of uh, they have a lot of clout in out of proportion to the uh, to the numbers in the community. So that's why you know uh, and uh, and and a lot of in in, in several cases these supermarkets and other businesses have a monopoly. Over the services they provide, uh, you know, and uh, you know, uh, places like uh, uh, you know Kroger, uh, Walmart, they tend to be the dominant, uh, you know, uh, supermarket chains in their respective communities. So that gives them a great deal of power. Not only economically, only but, economically also but also politically. Brother Haki, your response to that phenomenon? Uh, repeat that question, Brother uh, Africa. Yeah, I think part of the contradiction with Kogo um, with with having the power to make an individual decision that will have a great impact on the overall community is structured in a way that the system allows private ownership of production to have a final say in terms of how it is utilized, how it is um, distributed, how it is, you know, um, how it is, um, how it plays a role in terms of meeting the needs of the community. For example, you know, because of the fact that um, we know when we talk about food, Food is a socialized process. There are many people who play the role 
of developing their food, transforming their food, and and setting up their food to have in, 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 in the grocery store so people can have access to it. But because there are certain structures and legal, legal laws under capitalism, whoever owned that particular dynamic store get control of all of those things that lies inside of the store. So therefore, you know, this allowed Kroger to um, slow down their business, deny the people the food that they need, and make a decision just totally um, self-centered, based on their own self-interest. And I say, is this one of the behavior of why capitalism is not a good system that would address the overall needs and interests of the majority of the people? You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. And as also the and structure also dimension, the structure I, when, dimension I, when, I, when I opened up with well, the, uh, the article I, 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 I read, one of the things is that when we talk about systems, we got to be very clear that these, these corporations like Kroger uh, work under the guise of a system. In that context, anytime you have a system that's geared toward their empowerment, then essentially what you're saying is the masses of people's existence become esoteric. Their existence is not important whatsoever. And because their existence is not important, where you elevate dollars over human life, then the, the, the how you treat people becomes inconsequential. It's not even a concern as far as food is concerned. The mere fact that you have a situation where you have 55,000 employees who are subjected to COVID-19 virus on a consistent basis, and someone asks you for $4, increase of $4 per hour. For four months to sort of uh, to sort of um, uh, create a, 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 a situation where you know in the event that these people come down with COVID-19, at least they have some type of income in terms of falling back on in terms of you know providing for their family. The mere fact that COVID said that we don't care about that speaks violence in terms of the, the kind of apathy, the kind of insensitivity when it comes to working people. But we got to understand this is just not this is not a question of personality. You're talking about the structure. Dimension, and also one of the things when you talk about structurally, one of the things you know, is, is very interesting is that when you talk about the who benefits in the society in terms of how the system is structured, one of the things when you talk about the, the high cost of living, most people don't want to don't deal with the fact that mostly the high cost of living to a large extent has a lot to do in terms of government policy, particularly when you talk about in terms of the relationship with countries like China, in terms of its undermining you know global food chain for the sole purpose of so-called punishing China. And all you actually achieve doing is punishing your own people. But it doesn't matter because investing in China means lots and lots of money. So the ill effect, higher prices as related to, to, to poor people, is unimportant. In other words, it's your fault that you don't have enough money to enough money to to, to purchase food. So therefore, if you can't afford to afford to eat, tough. Also, one of the things when we talk about structure, we talk about you know consumer price index, and we also we talk we look at the role of inflation in society. What is interesting is that oftentimes consumer price index is manipulated. These are political considerations. So you have a situation where these labor bodies, the economic bodies, tell you. That inflation is, is, is low when reality inflation is very, very high. In other words, the cost of living is very, very high, but they tell you based upon the consumer price index that inflation is very low, which means that there's lots of money out there. People have access to lots of money, so therefore the cost of food won't affect them simply because people are making so much money. The irony is that people are not making money. And when we, when, when we superimpose that upon the increased number of people who, the 10 million thus far, who lost their jobs as a result 
of COVID-19 policy, they clearly, you know, uh, people in the Straits. And the mere fact that COVID doesn't care enough about the lives, not only the population at large, but its own employees, big guys in terms of how, how useless they see the masses of people. So clearly, you know, this is all structural, Brother Africa. And so therefore, when, it, so when we talk about the evils of capitalism, we got to understand. And one of the things and when I talked about earlier, implicit in capitalism is destruction across the board, whether you talk about politically, socially, or, or, or economically. It's all about destruction, destruction on all levels. Not only destru- destruction of human beings, but destruction of the planet itself. And mere fact that this persists, it violence in terms of the kind of um, uh, sec- uh, uh, psychopathy that exists in the minds of people in positions of power who are incapable, for whatever reason, not seeing that your policies are very destructive, not only to human beings, but to the planet itself. And why do you continue to persist in policies that you know are destructive? So part of the destructiveness is not giving a damn about the suffering of the masses of people or the, or the ills or the problems confronting the masses of people. So the mere fact if I work for Kroger and, and, and once I find out this was going on, you know, I don't know, you know, you know how, I don't know as, a, as an employee of Kroger, I don't know how to take it. But one thing is very, very clear that, that the organization uh, doesn't give a damn about, you know, about my health, doesn't give a damn about, you know, my ability to take care of my family, doesn't give a damn about my ability, you know, to pay the rent and so forth and so on. So clearly, you know, uh, you know we, we got to talk, we, we can't talk about capitalism without talking about the structural dimension of capitalism and why it's very, very destructive uh, to, to people at large. And um, without that understanding, for anyone who thinks that somehow capitalism is altruistic, all they need to do is stop back and think of it and ask themselves, you know, uh, what kind of system makes it possible for one-tenth, one percent of the population to control 64 percent of the wealth at expense of all others who don't have no access to any wealth at all, and not understanding that that kind of equation can only contribute to suffering, death, and destruction. You know, panelists, I'd like to get your view on these two current event issues that took place in the U.S. as it relates to, again, this whole question of being truthful to the people and giving these institutions power to do as they please. For example, the recent mayor in New York is caught up into um, a, a struggle, a political struggle, around him not properly reporting the real numbers of death dealing with COVID at the time when it was um, going on. It been reported that he reported less than 50% of the real deaths. In other words, there were 50% more deaths that actually occurred than what he reported. And part of his rationale was that he didn't want to report the real truth because he felt like those figures were being manipulated by his opposition party, the so-called Republican Party, to undermine maybe his his interest of being reelected again. Um, so it raised some questions in my mind in terms of again, can we believe anything that come out of these um, politician mouths? And if he did it, who else been underreporting these deaths? So what do y'all make of that particular? Um, that particular um, issue that has just that has just recently been exposed by the un, underreporting of, of deaths as relates to this particular virus. Brother Anthony, you can start first, and then Brother Moses. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, 
I think what happened when this sort of thing occurs, it raises, it brings into question the actual death toll from this illness, and then and the fact that it might be more serious than people realize. And um, and uh, it it raises into credibility whether you can believe coming out of these politicians' mouths, and the fact that they'll say things to try to um, uh, to tr- uh, you know underreporting is a very serious problem. Because uh, pe- uh, people can gauge the the seriousness or severity of uh, this particular ailment, and uh, and uh, you know that puts the masses of the people in a very dangerous situation, and it uh, and it undermines the safety of facilities. Like uh, hospitals and uh, other places where, uh, where 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 people are seriously ill, such as nursing homes, and uh, so uh, so it's a very dangerous uh, situation uh, to be put in because you don't know who to believe, and uh, so it, so it makes things very difficult. Brother Moses, what you yeah, draw this, from this yeah, unreported? What you, you make of this? This is an example of, of the Trump of, style, of, style uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, this uh, confidence. You know, confidence. don't want the don't people want to lose confidence, lose confidence and want to maintain people's confidence in them as a as a person and as their leadership. And so, in order to maintain confidence, they will lie. To, to maintain your confidence, and these are kind men. This is what this is what we're talking about, kind men. And we need we need some statesmen. We need some people who are grounded in the people who are who are of the people and and by the people and for the people, in this, and willing to look out for the interests of the people and not just sit there and lie, but to explain patiently the situation in a in a in a stone cold sober rational way um uh, we don't have the spirit of fear but a, a, a power and love and a sound mind and so so we should be able to explain what's going on patiently to the people uh and without you know trying to con people it's it's ridiculous thank you thank you Haki, what you make of this uh, undermining or underreporting of deaths? What lessons can we learn from this? And what should be the penalty? Uh, are they allowed, should they be allowed to just go without having any kind of penalty for this kind well, of behavior? You know, the problem, you know, the problem. Yeah, well, the, the, the yeah, problem well, is that, problem you know, when you talk about traditional you know, talk politics, about traditional politics, manipulation and deception is part of the game. One of the things that politicians are motivated by the pursuit of power, and how do you how do you, how do you get that power? Well, you get that power by convincing those positions of economic, economic power that, in fact, that you can manage things, that you can not only manage the economy, but you also can manage people's perception. So as long as you can create the perception that you that you're in control and, and, and that you got people believing that everything's in control, 
then you do your job, which means that ensures that you're going to be supported in the future for higher offices, you know, in the land. So clearly his motivation is all about power, and he, that doesn't make him different from any politicians. It's all about the power. It's not about the common good. Uh, with some exceptions, there are some individuals out there who are actually, actually concerned about the common good, who are actually trying to form in policies that are geared toward the common good. So let me just clarify exactly what I'm saying here. Uh, but, I, but I think that this kind of tendency, this kind of practice that persists among politicians is nothing new. And as far as being as far as being penalized for this kind of practice, it's, it's, it's not going to happen because in part and parcel, this kind of practice is perceived as part of statesmanship. This ability to lie and deceive and to trick people is part of part of uh, statesmanship. So why would why would they penalize that? They see that as a, as a, as, a, as a good thing, as a noble thing. It's not seen as a negative thing. So you and I might perceive it as a negative thing. You know, the idea that you're lying about people's deaths uh, was underscores, you know. Uh, uh, a, a lack of real critique in terms of what's really going on. So we see it as a negative. Well, the people in positions of power see it as a favorable. They see it as a strong character trait. In other words, your ability to deceive, your ability to trick people, is seen as something that's noble, something that is good. And so, therefore, he's not likely to be looked down upon by those in positions of power. As a, he's more likely to be looked upon favorably because he's able to create a perception that the few people who died from COVID-19 in reality was quite different. So clearly, Brother Africa, is just part and parcel in terms of this thing that we call politics or traditional politics. And that's not going to change. As long as you've got an economic system in place with sort of buttress, that kind of mindset, that kind of behavior, then nothing's going to change. Clearly, you and I have a problem from a philosophical standpoint that you lie about something that's, that at least you allege is serious like COVID-19, but then you undercount the numbers. So clearly, we philosophically have a problem with that. But, of course, the ruling elite uh, don't have a problem in terms of the kind of lies and deception since lies and deception are commonplace. It's one of the tools that they use in terms of maintaining power. So in terms of doing something, uh, addressing the issue, it's not going to be addressed. They acknowledge it happened, but that's about all. Nothing's going to happen to them. Okay, we have a caller who, like to, who may have a question or comment. We're going to take this caller. Caller, your last four numbers are... Six oh five zero six oh five zero. The mic is yours. Yes, call six oh five zero. Your question or comment, please. Go on once. Go on twice. Can you hear me? Call us. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. can. We can hear you. Can, yes, your question. Yeah, great discussion. Great discussion this evening. Thanks for taking my call. Taking my call. Um. um, um I, I think one of the things that that needs to be thought about when I was when I was younger, um, very young, I used to box. And um, I used to box just just for recreation. A good friend of mine, his father was a um, boxing coach, so I would go there all the time. So. And I, I was very much and into sports. So, so one of the things so that, I'm, the used things to that I'm used to is competition. Is competition. And, and one, of the, one, of the one of the things that's always puzzled me is, is and, and I'm not referring and, to anyone on this call or anything, just overall generally, how we think about this, what we're going through and what we've been going through. We are in a competition. And everybody in the world knows it but but us. Um, it's just very it's very interesting because we complain about being in a competition. 
um, we complain about being in the battle. When I got into the ring, if somebody hit me in the face, I didn't get mad at them. I fought back because I understood the arena I was in and that this is a competition. So I didn't complain about getting hit because I was pretty good and I was always gave as good as I got. So when I look at the problems that we're in and how we keep bringing up the thing, they're doing this, they're doing that. Well, how about if you're in a, we're in a competition, we're in a war, and they're supposed to do that. That's what your adversary does. And I think one of the things we do far too often is we talk about being hit. It's almost like we're in a boxing ring and we have golf clubs. I mean, we're, we're in golf attire. It's almost like we don't know the game and the sport that we're in. My thing is that, yes, when you're in a competition, they are going to do this, these things. If you have an enemy, they are going to come after you. They're going to do all the things that they've done, and they're planning to do more. So I just wanted to say that because I think, you know, especially as men, we talk about what's being done to us instead of saying, you know what, we're in a war. This is what happens in the war. Everything that's being done to us, this is what it looks like. You know, so we have to either get the start from where we are and just get going. Everything that happened in the past is history. It, it was, and we, we're supposed to take from history and move forward, right? We're in a situation where the old systems don't work anymore. The old forms of governance, democracy, you know, um, capitalism, socialism, communism, all that stuff doesn't work. It has been tried, and it has failed. And it has failed. Or if it, and it hasn't, or if it, it hadn't failed, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. So my thing is, and I think the young people are doing it. We have to think of new systems, new ways of governing, new ways to do things. And I know as older people, it's hard for us to think that way. But I think the younger people have gotten it a little bit, and they're moving forward. They're not even looking at using. They're they're going outside the whole financial system now. Older people don't even know what pancake swap is or Uniswap or things like that. They've gone outside the system and built new systems to where now I can borrow money not based and not be discriminated against because it's all based on my cryptocurrency collateral. They're building new systems. And I think as older people, we need to start putting away the old ways that didn't work and start trying to think and help the young people to think of new ways of doing things. I just wanted to get, you know, everyone's comments. Okay, Carl, you said a lot. You're making certain assumptions. I'll stop right there and let my panelists deal with some of the things you have articulated. Panelists, you heard the call? Yeah. response. Yeah. Go ahead, Brother Moses. Lead us off. Yeah, this, this yeah. brother, you know, this brother is very, very, uh, 
optimistic and um and, and, uh, and hopeful and about, the about the future, but he has a lot of idealism. He doesn't. He doesn't. He hasn't studied history. He doesn't study political economy, political science, the history of government, and what what's possible and what's impossible. He has. He thinks just because he has ideas that they are possible. Uh, uh, but but we have to be scientific about things. I mean, for instance, the COVID virus is a very real thing, and uh, we can't just let our ideas and feelings uh, overwhelm us. We have to stay scientific and combating it. And it's the same with capitalism. Capitalism is a disease, a social disease, and we have to apply socialism as the answer to capitalism. And, uh, you know, Socialism has worked, has worked, and it is working, and uh, and that's the bottom line. That's the big secret that that the elephant in the room, and uh, and uh, it's just a matter of knowing, knowing uh, history, knowing what's going on in the world, and uh, and taking a stand for justice, truth, and equality, and uh, you know. No. There's not like there's, there's a lot of possibilities. There's 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 only so many paths, so many paths. and, uh, and uh, we have to study history and understand, history that. understand and, that. And, and dialectic and historical materialism is the answer, and not idealism. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I I I admire brother's attempt to provide some clarity in terms of the situation we find ourselves confronted with in society. But I don't know where to start. There's so many. Uh, there's so many um, ironies. Uh, you know, in his question. But let me let me take a stab at it first. In terms of you know uh, people not understanding that we're at war, it is a function not only of not understanding history but also not understand economics or politics. So one of the problems, you know, recently, you know, I, I talked to a young lady, and uh, she said she's interested in in, in, in in part of the group because she wanted to be, um, she, she wanted to be indoctrinated. And so I smiled. I said, indoctrinated, huh? So she proceeded to talk, and I tried to explain some objective realities in terms of, um, you know, employment situation as it impact African people. I try to explain to in terms of the obstacles in terms of getting loans and those kind of things. I talked about in terms of obstacles in terms of a, um, a remedial education system, which is designed specifically to ensure that African children don't have access to the latest technology. She didn't understand what I was saying. It's not that she somehow was lacking intellectually. It's that the whole conditioning, when she didn't understand the history of the politics of economics, uh, led her to believe that, in fact, that what she perceived to be true in terms of our situation uh, in other words, her position was that, you know, the, the reason why that we're in the position we're in is because we're not striving hard enough. She didn't understand all those sociological, economical, or political uh, institutions that impact on the way we think and the way we behave. So to, to say that we should, it's, simple, it's as simple as simply saying we had war and understand that and therefore, you know, move forward, it doesn't work that way, my brother. It just doesn't work that way, you know, ideologically. It just doesn't work that way. Sociologically, any other kind of way, it doesn't work that way. Secondly, it's, it's fine to talk about cryptocurrencies. We can talk about cryptocurrencies. I'm, I'm a fan of blockchain technology. But blockchain technology is not going to resolve our problems, and mainly because, one, when we talk about the individuals who are assuming large chunks of cryptocurrency are the same billionaires who currently hold access to most of the currency that exists in society. Uh, secondly, when we talk about in terms of, this, in terms of who, have, who have what access to what in terms of wealth, we've got to be understanding 
that that same process in terms of wealth, wealth allocation exists on the capitalists also exists on the cryptocurrency. So this notion that somehow that we simply go into cryptocurrencies or blockchain technologies and our problems are solved is just ludicrous. Uh, thirdly, I think that well, one of the things you know, uh, you know, when, when you talk about the this notion in terms of, you know, um, you know that that you know that um, you know that um, you know when you give this when you, we give we this, this analogy in terms of you know, in a boxing ring, you know, one of the things is problem you know one of the problems is that when you when you talk about you know, that kind of analogy is very, very simplistic because one of the problems is that obviously if you're in a boxing ring then you understand who your opponent is so you look at square at him. It's different when your opponent is invisible and you don't understand who the opponent is. You don't understand the rules of the game. You don't understand the strategies they employ against you. You don't understand any of that. And keep in mind, this is just not people who are not in, not into politics. So I'm talking about people who are politically conscious who don't understand all the ins and outs in terms of political economic systems. So, just, so, so the, the idea, yes, the idea is to get people to understand that you know there is in fact a war going on. But it's not going to be achieved by simply, you know, castigating or browbeating people, uh, or implying that somehow folks, that folks simply just don't get it. That's not going to get our people to understand the nature of the struggle that we're up against. And I let Brother Anthony take it from there. Yeah, I want to add that uh, to the points that uh, that Brother Robert and Brother Haki made, and uh, that in addition. Uh, when uh, a, a boxing a boxing match, you know who your opponent is, and uh, you know the rules of the game. Both of y'all know the rules of the game, basically. Both you and your opponent. And uh, uh, let's see, because of the way we've been oppressed over the centuries. A lot of us don't understand the rules of the game because uh, the war has been waged in several ways, not only physically, but also culturally, ideologically. And uh, so our thinking is warped. And, uh, you know, our thinking is screwed up. So uh, we have to get organized as a people in order to uh, engage uh, in this war effectively and come out winners. And, uh, and uh, we have to have, we have to gain, regain, regain control of our land base, which is Africa. And that's something, and that's one of the many lessons that Malcolm X left us with. And uh, and uh, because, but because we are disorganized, we cannot engage in this uh, struggle effectively without huge casualties and whatnot. And so also, we, we need to be organized as a people. And also, one of the things uh, the, the brother also alluded to, he talked about the fact that uh, none of these systems work. Well, I submit to you, if you, if, if you understand global history, if you understand world history, or even history in the context of right now, when you look at the situation where the U.S. continues to attack countries around the world which are, quote-unquote, socialist-orientated, you got to ask yourself, why are they doing that? If the system doesn't have any efficacy, if it's not effective, if it doesn't have any meaningful uh, 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 
meaningful uh, benefits to the masses of people in those countries, why do you think they practice, why they're moving towards socialism? There's a reason why they use to attack those countries, because they understand that when you talk about systems, there's only two systems, my young brothers. There's only two. There's not many. You just, so the young people can't, ain't going to innovate another system. That's, that ain't going to happen. There's only two systems, my brothers. That's capitalism or socialism. Either one or the other. You got to decide which you. If your position is that the capitalist system has some legitimacy, then you persist with the policies or the strategies that are currently employed by capitalists, which means when you talk about, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, this economic disparities, when you talk about people having lack of access to education, school, housing, and so forth and so on, or when you talk about this individual mindset, that us-against-the-world kind of mindset, if you believe those things are just and justifiable, then you go to capitalism. But if you think human beings are capable in terms of sharing, sharing about one another, or even dependent for that matter, if you think human beings are capable of doing that, then you go socialist. That's only two. The young people ain't going to make up a third one. It doesn't exist. Now, if you want to say that we're going to have a combination of two, that's fine. China is a combination of two. China is a combination of capitalism and communism. It's a combination of two. With the, with the one prevailing ethos is though it has an interest in terms of the masses of its people. And so therefore, innovate, not only just the masses of its people, but the world. But the world. Because China realized it cannot survive on its own. And if it don't have productive economic relationship with other nations, it can't survive. And so therefore, China becomes a threat to the United States simply because it seeks to rearrange the global alignment in terms of politics or economics. So let's be very clear on that, young brother. Understand that when you talk about the young people come up with a third solution, it doesn't exist. It never existed, and it won't exist. There's only two ways of looking at the world. There's only two systems. There's only two. So now I close with that. Okay, panelists, we can let our brother get the final say. Okay, my caller, you heard the response to your response, and we'll let you get the final say. Your thoughts, caller. First. Yes, thank you. Um, First of all, I never said that cryptocurrency was going to solve our problem. That wasn't what I said. So I just wanted to make that one straight. Number two, I do have an abiding understanding of history because I've studied history. That's number two. I mean, so my whole thing is if you gentlemen are saying that what you were taught by white people about communism, socialism, and capitalism are the only forms of government that could ever be thought of by man, then I won't even respond to that. I'll just let that stay out there. But as far as going forward, I do reject the notion that we cannot think our way out of this, that we can't think of new ways of doing things for ourselves, that we can't think of and imagine new systems, whereby the systems that we think of matches our cultural, moral, and ethical base. I, I just, you know, I, I just, if, if, you know, if, if and, and I want to ask, and, and I want to ask, where in the world, where in the world, right now, right now, is a government, is a government, these governmental these systems were thought of by white people, but where these governments, where these governments exist, exist, that you that would, you, you and most you other and most of us other would want to of live, us would want to live, right now, um, right now. 
Um, so I I, I, so I, think I, you, I think I you think you hope for for letting me talk. For letting me talk. Um, I, I didn't. Um, I, I, I think some, I think assumptions, some were assumptions were made about what I said. About what I things, said I things I didn't say, but maybe say, that's on me that's because on I miscommunicated. And if I did, I apologize for that. I apologize for that. Okay, Palis, last response. And then we got to move forward. Uh, he put out the question: Where are their realities in practice? of these concepts of having an alternative to capitalism in so many words. Uh, let's see. I could think of uh, I could think of a couple of examples. Um, Cuba and uh, and Grenada when they tried to implement socialism. And I and I, I chose those two because uh, they have a, a similar cultural composition, uh, you know, uh, somewhat similar to Africans in the U.S. And uh, and uh, if you look at um, uh, Cuba. For example, they have been trying to build a socialist society for nearly 60 years. And uh, they have survived economic and uh, ecological disasters that would have torn most capitalist countries apart. If you look at the history of Cuba carefully. And uh, the other example I gave was uh, Grenada. When the Grenadian uh, uh, Revolution took place during the 80s, they only had had a a short time period in which to attempt to build socialism. But in their attempt to build a socialist society, the living conditions of the masses of the people improved considerably than when they were under neocolonial domination. So I give uh, a, a couple of examples where an alternative measure, measure has worked. Now the reason why you don't hear about the uh, the uh, the workings of socialism is because the media in this society is dominated by imperialists, uh, which is uh, you know the highest stage of capitalism. So you don't hear about alternatives to capitalism in this society. Well, as far as innovating, as far as innovating an economic system which is geared toward your culture, and it seems to me that if you're serious about that, socialism is the only way you can go. If you look at it now, river cultures in terms of the evolution of human beings in terms of the interactions with one another based upon uh, a, a, struct, a, 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 a hierarchical structure which which was flat to ensure everybody get what they need, irrespective of their of their division of labor. So the scientists got the same thing the 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 the, 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 the farmer got. So there was no distinction in terms of the human needs. Also, if you look at it in terms of the, the great empires of uh, Ghana, Shanghai, and Mali, if you look 
look at those empires in terms of that flat structure, in terms of ability to share with one another, keep in mind that was very much a, 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 a African a African perception, African belief that this is in fact how all society should be organized. And even if you go to, to Egypt, in fact, in terms of propensity, in terms of you know, uh, in terms of people sharing one, sharing one another, it's very much an ethos in terms of kids. So it's very interesting when so we talk about uh, system that affects your culture. Then it's a social system. But keep in mind, in addition to that, we want to understand that capitalism only came about in the 17th century. It was even prior to capitalism, most people worked, most people cooperated, worked together to show the community. Everyone got what they needed. It was only to the advent of capitalism in the 17th century that people have been indoctrinated or conditioned to believe that ruthlessness, that selfishness, that greed is a good thing. And so, therefore, what happened was that as a consequence, you had people like kings who become positions of power, who utilize that power by crushing the will of the people, imposing certain ideas on them which were antithetical. To their own existence. So clearly, if you talk about culture being the guiding principle of your, 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 your economics, then for African people, it's socialism. So I don't know, I don't know how you feel about that. But if you, if that's your position, that it should reflect your culture, then it's socialism. Capitalism has never reflected African, African ethos in terms of as a living arrangement. So clearly, socialism has to play a part in terms of any type of system that's 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 created uh, in the future. Also, one other thing, I I, I want to. I, 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 I want to say one other thing, thing uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, um, you know, um, you know, um, you know, one of the things, you know, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, trying to bring about, you know, some kind of redress to the problems that we're referring with as a people, one of the things I think we first and foremost we have to do is, you know, one thing that Malcolm X and Fancy Nolan's very clear on, uh, just as a, as a couple of examples, we have to eradicate this notion, in, in fact, you know, that somehow that uh, uh, certain ideas are obsolete. Uh, one of the real problems in terms of as we're disconnecting, asking community between Young people and the elders. Young people who actually think they know more than the elders do. Uh, there was a situation in, in Atlanta, Georgia, when, when P. Diddy and a couple of rappers brought together some people to have a discussion in terms of which way forward for the African community. They failed to bring in, I mean, the most seasoned revolutionaries living in Atlanta, Georgia, they could have invited to provide clarity. They chose not to invite them. Instead, they invited a lot of young people who had no idea in terms of the, the history, the extent of the history, in terms of, uh, in terms of what. What our people had. So as a result, the continuity that our people need in terms of moving forward was lost. So I just say that, so brother, young brother, I want you to understand that it's fine that young people have their ideas, and we support that, and we encourage that, and we have we have children, you know, we have grandchildren, and we, we encourage them, you know, to move forward. You know what I mean? But the same token, always understand that you know the life that you live, you know. People, people, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of age, they've already lived their life. life. So they have some insight in terms of in terms of their life. They have some historical experiences which should be discounted. So I'm gonna be. I just want to caution you to be careful just to, to dismiss, uh, you know, the views from older people simply because they're older, because that would be a big political mistake. All right, panelists, what we're going to do, uh, how we're going to move forward, we're going to talk a little bit about that thing, but I would like to get a, some kind of quick response from each one of y'all, even to invite a guest tonight. Um, and, Brother Hackey, you just made me thought about this. When, I guess a couple of weeks ago, there was an article written about this idea by Jay-Z and some other well-known um 
rappers and people who have money, where they were addressing how the African community can maybe solve some of their problems. And part of their solutions, part of their solution was to one, we need to own their own community, and then justify it. I wonder, um, what y'all think about that particular um, idea? That we need to own our own community and then justify it. What concerns and issues does that raise when you look at a concept of African people owning their own community and then gentrify it? I still not clear in terms of how he used the word gentrify. But that was their solution of how we could maybe change our community, control who comes into our community just like the Europeans do. Y'all response? Panelists and my participant. Matter of fact, I let my brother go first. My brother, six oh five. But what do you think about that? What's your thoughts on that? Six oh five zero. In the comments on that concept, owning your own community um, and um, gentrifying. Yes, go ahead. Um, if you if you own if you own your own community, you probably shouldn't have to gentrify it. Um, because you own it, right? So that means you have control over it, which means you probably live it, right? Um, so I mean, I mean, I would need to hear more about it. That's kind of a broad blanket statement. Um. But I would need to hear, need need to hear, to hear more detail on uh, how they uh, think that that should be done, that should be done. Um, before I could really it's, give a, a, a good answer to, to that. Yeah, it's an article, Jay. I'll try to find the article again. Maybe um, if you email us at um, AfricaOnTheMove2 at Gmail, we can supply the article to you. Uh, I think when you talk oh, about gentrifying it, he was talking about we have the power to dictate who comes into our community and who doesn't. And there, I see that being pro- problematic. But anyway, that was my there, understanding there was a, when I saw the article. Yeah, there was a um, – there, there, I guess there were a number of um, black people or black families that bought – and I'm sure you guys have heard of it – that bought some land in – I think it was Georgia. I think it was Georgia. Mm-hmm. In rural mm-hmm. Georgia. And um, – um, they they were talking they, about they were making talking it a place where black people could come and feel safe and this and that and the other, and that they were going to do a reality show on the land and that kind of thing. I think what I was what I wanted to hear was how were they going to secure the land? What was this, what were the security plans for this land that they had? Because the land is really surrounded by a community that's non-black. You know, so so yeah. how are they going to so secure it? Gonna secure and it? I wanted to hear some and other details. I think it's great think what, it's they did, what they did, or what they're, or what they're trying, trying to do. But to do, I mean, there's but, other details I mean, there's that other I probably would need, probably need to hear. Um, um, and, and and you know, try and, to figure, and, you know, try, try to figure that out. Try to figure that out. Hmm. All right, thank you, Carl. Panelists, y'all response real quickly, and then we'll at least let's deal with a couple articles as we see our theme tonight. Um. The money game and control. Sure, sure. Uh, I'll uh, I'll, I'll take uh, a start at it. There historically, if you look at our history carefully, 
There have been several attempts made by us to build our own communities within the U.S., uh, such uh, as such Wilmington, as Wilmington uh, uh, Tulsa, uh, Tulsa, Rosewood, etc. And uh, the common, uh, 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 you know, history that all those community has is that all of these were predominantly African communities surrounded by European communities. That were uh, that were either uh, 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 jealous or disliked what was being accomplished in these African communities, and uh, and uh, we were not sufficiently organized to defend our communities from these hostile attacks by uh, these Europeans. And uh, they organized and uh, burnt, uh, uh, burnt or damaged uh, or destroyed, uh, uh, you know, our, you know, communities. And that happened to every single one of them: Wilmington, Rosewood, Tulsa, etc. And uh, and uh, we never really recovered from that. Uh, and, uh, we have attempted to do that. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, but the thing about it, though, we were not sufficiently organized, nor had, nor had, the, had the land mass the land necessary, mass necessary to, defend to defend our communities. Haki? Even further back. Even further back. You, you can go. You, you can go. You can go even even further, even further back. There's a book by Willie Lee Rose called, called um, um, uh, "Rehearsals for Reconstruction: A Port Royal uh, Port Royal Experiment." There was an experiment in Nancy, South Carolina, where actually they, they, the uh, the wealthy whites set up an experiment to see how proficient uh, African people would be without the use of slavery. In other words, the perception was that African people would simply die off simply because we've come so accustomed to slavery that we were incapable of thinking for ourselves. Well, they tried an experiment. Well, the experiment, was, the experiment didn't go the way the wealthy white uh, elite thought it would go. In fact, the Africans built a thriving society. I mean, they, they built a society which, which rivaled the economic uh, earnings of the entire South. So we talk about education, talk about access to health care, we talk about in terms of uh, providing for your poor, uh, all of those things that are, makes a community. African people were able to innovate all those things. Well, you know what happened to that to the Port Royal experiment? Those same wealthy white folks destroyed. I suspect that even if, in fact, like in Louisiana, there's also a situation in Louisiana where, where some brothers and sisters brought a large piece of land for the sole purpose of terms of constructing, you know, a, a black villa or, or where people of African descent could actually live. The problem is that since we don't control the, the land values, that's a concern because what's going to happen, my, and this is speculation, but I suspect what would happen is that they would get together and make sure the folks that profit those, those land, the value of the land per acre would actually increase exponentially, which means that holding all that land becomes extremely difficult. The same kind of policy they use against black farmers to make sure to drive black farmers, you know, from their farms. So clearly, you know, uh, if you're going to do that kind of thing, I have no problem with that, but you got to understand that if you're going to do that, the young brother alluded to, 
because you're at war, then you have to have some, some allies, not in the United States, outside of the United States, in terms of keeping that project going. And, of course, that in itself brings its own struggles. The U.S. is not going to simply sit by and allow you to bring in money for this purpose in terms of, you know, empowerment of African people and society. They're going to resist that. Remember, Qaddafi tried to give us a billion dollars to create infrastructure, to create businesses and, and jobs for African people in America. The U.S. is on that. And then they told Farrakhan, if you touch that billion dollars, we can put you under prison. So, so clearly, you know, I have no problem in terms of theoretically in terms of doing that. But the reality is that if you're going to do that, then you've got to be prepared, you know, uh, to wage war. Because it's going to be a war. They're not going to allow the empowerment of African people to exist in society. It's simply not going to happen. Next, we go to Brother Moses. Moses, your thoughts, your response. Brother Moses. If we don't have one, uh-huh. Brother Moses. Uh-huh. Are you there, Brother Moses? If not, let us do this. We're going to go to a, a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, what we're going to do is we're going to get our final thoughts from everybody, including our participants. And then we're going to leave y'all with some lessons from history. And we're going to continue this discussion next week as part three of the Money Game and Control. There are some excellent um, articles we want to discuss and we think it's critical for us to share these kind of information and these kind of ideas with the community at large. So we can begin to think more critical of how we can move forward as a people. So what we're going to do when we come back, we want everyone to find their thoughts for the night. Then we'll leave you all with some lessons from history. And um, that's going to be tonight's program. So you are listening to Africa on the Move. As your host, Brother Africa, we're going to go to our Brother Marvin. And he had a question that he was asking us. And we still must answer that question. That question is... Hey, hey, hey. hey what's up, man? Brother, what's up? Oh, uh, hey, how you doing?
tonight's program. Call the 6050. You'll find us thoughts for tonight. Yeah, I just wanted to yeah, thank you again for allowing me to come on and talk and, and, and be a part of this very interesting discussion. I think as far as money is concerned, I'll just take a positive a positive route because I know there's a lot of things wrong in our community with money. But I think one of the things that's happening is that there are different ways now to make money. And I think, you know, a lot of our young people are finding there are people that are there online are that on Instagram are online and on YouTube, and on YouTube who young kids who, who are millionaires. Kids who are millionaires. And as a young, as a um, young lady um, not lady that doesn't live too far from where I live, who's in Hollywood now because Hollywood she became now, a YouTube Instagram, Instagram star with her channel. With so her they're channel. finding so different they're ways, different ways of, making money. of making money. Um, they're also getting into stock trading. Trading stocks, trading the stocks, stocks, and trading stock, stock option contracts. Um, um, this is very lucrative for them. Lucrative for them. Um, my um, own, my uh, young people in my family, my including family, my uh, including nephew, my who's in university, university right now. Right he's, he's, he's into it and doing very well. And doing very. And I got into it when this whole pandemic thing happened. So I just wanted to say that, despite all of the challenges. That a lot of the young people are finding a way um, to to better their situation, uh, to better their financial situation. And I just wanted to put that out there and give a shout out to the young people who are doing this. We thank you, Carla, for your um, participation tonight, and um, hopefully we'll see you in the future. Share the word, spread the word. We thank you. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the night. Brother Moses, your final thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this has uh, uh, been a very interesting. Uh, I think, you know, we have a, there's a danger of not recognizing that science and truth and justice it's not a, it's not a, about a color, um, but it's about humanity and um, and the pursuit of knowledge. And um, so you know, to start labeling things as white or labeling things as as uh, as um, foreign or, or somehow alien and somehow it doesn't apply. Um, that's a very dangerous thing to be doing, and so we have to watch for that. Um, I think, you know, we, get, we have to argue on our own merits, and I, like I said, scientifically, we have to look at the real world, and uh, I think young people have to study, 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 and, and you know, because their ignorance is, is, is obvious uh, for those who are knowledgeable, and so I just leave it right there. Thank you. And we thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. Next, we go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, uh, you know, Henry Ford, the so-called great industrialist, he quoted, if people knew how banks operate, uh, there would be a revolution tomorrow morning, end quote. Obviously, you know, when you look at it in terms of the bank's relationship, particularly with the Treasury Department in terms of building, in terms of, you know, buying debt, clearly it creates favorable terms for corporations and for the wealth, for the wealthy. 
In fact, it's so successful. One of the things it's done is it, it, it actually contributes to an abundance of dollars throughout the world. As a consequence, that money, the value of those dollars has been decreasing. As a consequence, it's no longer of real investment value. So people are essentially leaving the dollar to invest in other kind of commodities, in particular cryptocurrencies. So clearly, you know, well, we got some problems in terms of economics, you know, before us. And one of the things you got to be very, very clear on that individual, individual economic advancement by no stretch of the imagination is going to resolve the problem African people face. What good is it if I'm a millionaire or billionaire? And I'm surrounded by poverty. So clearly we need to think a lot and hard about the kind of uh, positions that we take, the kind of things that we advocate, simply because if, in fact, we're at war, then we've got to start acting and thinking like, in fact, we're at war. And if we're at war, then all soldiers, you know, count. And so clearly we, we have to keep that in the back of our minds. But having said that, Brother Africa, I'm going to conclude by simply saying, as always, I encourage people, you know, to, to unravel the matrix. Because uh, without that uh, unraveling process, then understand clearly what's going on, the repercussions of what's going on, particularly as it makes the impact our community, uh, we'll never get to the position that we're, we can formulate strategies to adequately fight back. So clearly, we got to understand what's going on, but we need organizations and institutions specifically to deal with the plight of African people in the context of, of North America. And having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. And you do the same, Brother Hockey. Brother Anthony, you found your thoughts for tonight. Uh, my final thought for tonight is that we must have a clearer understanding of our history, and we must join an organization that is working for our people's liberation. Uh, it is it is increasingly important that we that Africans belong to an organization that is working for the people's liberation and is guided by revolutionary ideology. One such organization is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, which people can learn more about by visiting our website at www dot a dash a p r p dash g c dot org and on that note i thank you uh for allowing me to participate in this program tonight and we thank you for your participation brother anthony we thank all our listeners we thank all of our guests all the participants for your support and participation of Africa on the Moon. We actually have spread the word. Share it with your network that Africa on the Moon is a weekly program that comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can listen to our current, past, and old programs by going to Blog Talk Radio and checking out our archives. If you'd like to have any uh, making and comments and share your views, please email us at Africa on the Moon 2 at gmail.com. Until next time, we're going to sit for the next 15 minutes since this is part of African History Month. We're going back down to memory lane and we're going to learn something from our forefathers. We're going to listen to some of the messages that our brother Kwame Ture left us as it relates to the issue of African people moving forward for that total liberation and unification. So on that note, and that's struggle for Pan-Africanism. 
we bring you lessons from, from our brother Kwame Ture. With our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on this blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clairpoise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. <laughs> and Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress, they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa, you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. It's Chumpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. 
and we get stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism, because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> So we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system. And there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please, please summarize that we might have... No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry, maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching it. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm irresponsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. I got my clock right Matter of fact, I can say it in two words, black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one, Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. 
Of course, and me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. It will be solved. There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced. has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems 
cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come and will come. We here are revolutionaries, and we understand as revolutionaries that we stand on principles. You must not get confused. The American capitalist system does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. It's a fact everywhere. Matter of fact, you will read in your very textbooks that they say politics is the art of compromise. Another lie. I'm a revolutionary. I understand that where principles are involved, there is no compromise. Osagifo, Kwame Nkrumah, that noble son of Africa, says any compromise of principle is an abandonment of principle. When one speaks of principle, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no in-between. It's either one side or the other. When the capitalist press want to attack the all-African people's revolutionary party, they tell people all the time, don't you all go listen to them. They're crazy. Especially that one Kwame Ture, he was crazy in the 60s. He's crazier in the 90s. <laughs> well, you know, they call Malcolm crazy, so they're not going to call me sane. <laughs> and I'll never be sane in a system that's insane. That's clear. <laughs> They said, oh, he's just extremist. You know, for him, everything is one side or the other. It's either white or black. Ain't nothing gray. It's either hot or cold. Ain't nothing warm. It's either wet or dry. Ain't nothing damp. They're correct. We're revolutionaries, and we fight for principles, and there is no compromise. You know this well as students. When you recount a story, either you lie or you tell the truth. Where's the middle ground? On a test, either you cheat or you do not. There is no gray area. And there ain't no such thing like I did a little cheating on the test. <laughs> Either you believe in God or you do not. But the capitalist system will confuse you. A sister the other day tried to make middle ground, said, oh, I heard what you said about God, but let me tell you something. It's true that I believe in God, but I have my doubts. I told her, once you start doubting God, you have stopped believing in God. There is no middle ground in principle. If your people are oppressed, and you are not struggling to help alleviate the sufferings of your people, by your very active in actions, you are against your people. The point must be properly comprehended. The point must be properly driven home. Because the capitalist system will let you think that, I ain't against the people, but I ain't doing nothing for them. If you ain't doing nothing for them, you're against them. If your mother is being raped, and you put your hands behind your back, and you look at the television and say, I ain't got nothing to do with it, you're against your mother. If your people are being raped and you're looking at television enjoying a time, you're against your people. It's as simple as that. The only way we will advance as a people is when we come ourselves to take our advancement into our hands in a scientific manner. For us, there is no in-between on socialism or capitalism. We know this. Socialism is nothing but an economic system like capitalism. There can only be two in the world, only two. And there can only be two because each economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the means of production? Who will own and control the wealth of the country? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everybody will own. It's as simple as that. Of course, they will confuse you. America prides herself on being the richest country in the world. She ought to be. She's the biggest thief in the world. <laughs> Stole my mama. That's right. I know what I'm talking about. She'd be a little skewed, but because Cuba's a poor country, big that. Like if something has to do with how much money you get, even if you steal it. Well, in America, you know, it's so corrupt that everybody makes money by stealing, but the more you get, the less people ask you how you got it. <laughs> 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 
So they come to condemn Fidel Castro. Some people even think that because Cuba is poor, America can just walk in there and shoot them up. Vietnam was poor. That's right. Vietnam was very poor. When I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam, because, you know, I didn't go to fight the Vietnamese. They ain't did me nothing. I know my enemy. I'm not confused. <laughs> I'm not confused. When they called me, listen, I was in Mississippi getting terrorized trying to get my people to vote. They called me up in New York in the draft board. What you call me for? Well, you got to go to Vietnam and fight for democracy, give them the right to vote. <laughs> and they said it with a straight face. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> Uh, you got, you got <laughs> so I never got confused with them. No, but the Vietnamese whooped America on one bowl of rice a day. That's right. I don't know what makes them think the Cubans can't whip them on half a bowl. <laughs> and as for all you little Cubans out, you always planning. Look here, they've been planning on Castro since the Bay of Pigs. Let them plan on. <laughs> they will keep on planning. But Fidel Castro is a great man, and all people who love justice respect him. look at the situation. Cuba is a poor country. Of that, there is no question. But do you know in Cuba, every child from the time they're born until they die will have perfect health care free of charge to every level. They won't even pay for medicine. It's a poor country. Cuba is a poor country, but if you were a student in Cuba, you wouldn't pay a penny for your education. Not a penny. When you look at poor Cuba and see its concern for its citizens, and you look at rich America and see its homeless, of which Cuba has none, you can see the difference between capitalism and socialism. Socialism is an inevitable system. Don't you worry about these Cubans out here. Listen, they have so much disrespect for us that you know they're the only group in the country that picketed Mandela. I mean, more poor Mandela. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, if they pick at Mandela, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> well, Mandela's calling for peace. I'm calling for shotgun. Fire him up. Shoot him all. <laughs> if you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Needs her, needs her freedom, Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom. Take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine 
needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed, plant the seed of love, and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone, so all the world will know that Palestine Needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Palestine needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Oh, 
it's a winner Winter in America And all of the healers Done been killed Sit away You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.